This episode was made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. For more information, please visit patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 214. Hi there. Welcome to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm your host, Chris Lester. You can learn more about me and my work at chrislester.org and metamorecity.com. This is the show where I share my fresh new fiction with you. I'll also let you know the latest about my life and my writing. So let's get right to it. Here is this week's story. Today I'm bringing you part three of my science fiction story, The Nearness of You. If you're new to the show, go back to episode 212 to hear this story from the beginning. The following recap will contain spoilers. In our last episode, Jill continued her efforts at playing matchmaker for her husband Tad. Since Jill's physical body died more than three years ago, she has been living as a digital ghost inside Tad's augmented reality implants. This is because Jill was in a telepresence call with Tad at the time her autonomous car got into a fatal accident. Rather than lose her for good, Tad has kept Jill's instance running ever since, devoting nearly all of his implant's processing power and storage space to the task. As a result, Tad is increasingly isolated in a society where telepresence is used on a daily basis. Jill has lately been worried about Tad, and she has taken it as her mission to help him find love again. Tad, uncertain, asked whether Jill wouldn't be jealous if he did find someone. I'm not jealous, Jill assured him, and Tad answered that with another question. Why not? In reflecting on this question, Jill came to a realization. She cannot be jealous of Tad, because Tad never gave her a reason to be when she was alive. Even though Jill still feels like Tad's wife, she is in fact a very sophisticated computer program, imprinted with a copy of Jill's memories and emotional states from a specific moment in time. Instances are supposed to serve as temporary proxies for the person they represent. After a few minutes or an hour, their memories are supposed to be transmitted back to the person who sent them. Jill's instance has been running uninterrupted for three years, and while she might be inspired by Jill, based on Jill, she is not Jill. And now she's starting to run into circumstances her template had never prepared her for. She has no idea what to do with that information. Meanwhile, Tad's luck might finally be starting to change. Sarah Greenlee, one of Tad's fellow science teachers at the local middle school, has taken an interest in him. After Tad helped Sarah with a difficult physics lab, Sarah invited him out for happy hour at a local restaurant, where they could discuss more ideas for curriculum development, and maybe some other things, too. At Jill's urging, Tad accepted Sarah's offer, and they caravanned down to the restaurant for Tad's first date in a very long time. The date went remarkably well, partly because Tad and Sarah have already known each other for two years in a professional capacity, and partly because the two have a lot in common. Jill kept herself at a discreet distance and watched Sarah, listening to their conversation through Tad's implants. 
Chad confessed to Sarah that he hasn't been intimate with anyone in over three years, but he wasn't ready to talk about what had happened. He was interested in exploring things further with Sarah, but he was also carrying a lot of baggage, and he wasn't sure he was ready for another relationship. Sarah was sympathetic, but she encouraged Tad with the same words they used to encourage their students. Do your best. It's all right if you're not perfect. You'll get better with practice. Back out in the parking lot, Tad and Sarah started making out, and Sarah invited Tad to come back to her apartment. While the two lovebirds climbed into the back seat of Sarah's car, Jill sent instructions for Tad's car to follow them to Sarah's place. Both autonomous vehicles slipped smoothly and quietly into Friday night traffic, their owners being busy with other matters. One last warning, folks. This piece of the story contains some explicit sexual content. If you're listening to this episode with children around, you probably should pause and put in some earbuds. All right, here's the story. The Nearness of You Written and read by Chris Lester Part 3 Tad and Sarah make out like a pair of teenagers all the way to her apartment. I position myself in one of the front seats and ignore what's going on in the back. I can't help myself. My eyes are fixed on the road in front of us. I'm not wired into the sensors in Sarah's car like I am in Tad's, and I feel blind because of it. Any moment now, some drunk is going to stumble out into traffic, or a car's sensors will malfunction, or... or... But nothing happens. The Friday night traffic does its nimble dance to perfection, every car coordinating its movements with the cars around it. There are no slammed brakes, no honking horns, no drunk drivers. In the bad old days, someone in the United States would die every twelve minutes from a car accident, and dozens more would be injured. These days, it's more like one injury a week, and accidents are almost never fatal. The key word there being almost. We arrive at Sarah's place. I still can't move. Tad and Sarah get out, but I feel frozen in place. This is insane, I tell myself. You're a computer program. Why are you still scared of driverless cars? Hell, you have more in common with the car than you do with your own husband. I have no explanation. It doesn't seem fair that a simulation, an AI, can have post-traumatic stress. Then again, AIs are getting really sophisticated these days. Wait, if I say that, am I being vain, or...? My train of thought is interrupted by another perspective shift. Now I am inside the apartment, standing in the middle of Sarah's living room. It's messy, cluttered. She wasn't expecting company and she didn't have time to clean during the week. Her cat sits on the back of the sofa, watching suspiciously as this tall male human enters her domain. Tad and Sarah don't even notice, heading straight for the bedroom. Another shift, and now I am sitting up on Sarah's bed. It's a natural spot for a telepresence anchor, given the way these things are often used. 
Tad and Sarah are still in the doorway. Tad presses her up against the wooden frame, a sudden, forceful motion that draws a delighted squeal from Sarah. He puts his head over her shoulder, nibbling at her ear and the side of her neck. And then he sees me, lying on the bed, and freezes. I have only an instant to respond. Quickly opening the options menu in the instance software, I do something I haven't done in a long time. I set my clothing to off. Instantly, the sundress vanishes from my virtual body, leaving me nude before my husband and his new lover. I smile invitingly, running a hand slowly down my thigh. I may not be able to interact with Tad directly, but I can still touch myself. Bring her to bed, my love, I say in my most seductive voice. I want to watch. A spark of desire flashes in his eyes, and he turns his attention back to Sarah, kissing her fiercely. She makes an approving sound around his mouth, then turns their bodies together and pushes him in the direction of the bed. Tad backs up, runs into the bed with his calves, then lets himself fall back onto the mattress. He pushes himself up until he's lying on his back beside me. Good, I purr, stroking my fingers in slow, teasing motions over the folds of my labia. The programming on this part of the software package is excellent. I can actually feel myself getting wet, my fingers sending little spasms of pleasure through my non-existent body. They can simulate masturbation almost perfectly. I think with some irony, but they never programmed the shower so I could wash up afterwards. Priorities, I suppose. Tad is keeping one eye on me and one on Sarah, who has started improvising a little strip show for him. She shimmies out of her blouse, then turns her back to him and slowly removes her bra, smiling at him over her shoulder. She doesn't have a professional's grace or practice, of course, but she's having fun with it, and that's an aphrodisiac all on its own. Tad watches with hungry, appreciative eyes, and I can feel his erection swelling in his pants. Take off your shirt, Tad, I tell him. He does so, reaching up and unbuttoning it quickly and efficiently before pulling it off and throwing it on the floor. Sarah blows a kiss at him and then tosses the bra on top of his shirt. Tad pulls off his undershirt, a black printed T that says, Stand back, I'm going to try science, above a cartoon figure in a lab coat and safety glasses, then kicks off his shoes and goes to work on his pants. Sarah smiles, steps out of her flats, then unfastens her jeans. She bends at the waist as she pushes them down, exposing her shapely ass and her lacy yellow underwear. Oh, look at that, I say appreciatively. God, she's gorgeous. I can't wait to see you fuck her. The flesh and blood Jill was mostly heterosexual, but this is a performance to help Tad, so I put into my voice the pleasure I know he feels at the sight of her. It helps that the implant sensors tell me exactly how aroused he is, from heart rate to blood flow to the dilation of his pupils. Tad's pants fall to the floor, and he pushes them away with one foot. Sarah steps up close to him, between his spread legs, and leans in for a kiss, 
putting her hands on his shoulders for support. Tad returns the kiss hungrily, and his hands reach up to grip her waist. His fingers run over the lacy fabric of her panties, then under the edge of the elastic band. I can feel her smooth skin under his fingertips, the heat of her body against his palms. I start rubbing my virtual clit in earnest, feeling my own arousal stoked higher. Tad's hands move around behind her, cupping the soft curves of her ass. In response, Sarah climbs up onto the bed, straddling him, and wraps her legs around his back. She's strong. I can feel the force with which she grips him, feel her mound grinding against his erection through their underwear. She breaks the kiss and traces a line of nibbles and love bites from his shoulder up the side of his neck, then grabs his earlobe between her teeth and tugs on it hard. Tad sucks in a breath, and his cock jumps against her. I was never into pain during sex, but judging by the spike in his arousal, Tad is apparently kinkier than me. Strange, the things you don't learn about a person when you're married to them. After a bit more kissing and biting, Sarah unwraps her legs and pushes him backward. Tad shifts around to put his head up where the pillows are, and I move with him, nestling in with my head next to his ear. Sarah begins pulling off his underwear, and then her own. Tad spares a quick glance over at me, at my face flushed with arousal, at my wet fingers rubbing hard against my clit. Do it, baby, I whisper. I want to watch you fuck her. At my words, Tad's erection gets even harder. Sarah notices and smiles. She takes him in her hand, giving firm, steady strokes up and down his length. Look at this beauty, she says, with a playful twinkle in her eyes. I can't believe you've just been letting this go to waste. He grins down at her. When he speaks, his voice comes out shaky and thick with desire. Maybe I was just waiting for the right person to share it with. Mm, Sarah agrees. She crawls up the length of his body, kisses him again, then settles back onto her heels, straddling his groin. She reaches down, grasps his cock, then looks in his eyes once more for permission. At his nod, she guides him inside her. I'm immediately hit with a rush of sensory feedback. My attentions to my own body are only a simulation, but Tad's inputs are the real thing, and the difference swiftly becomes apparent. I want more. With shaking hands, I open my command menu and tab over to the sensory input screen. Sliding control bars fill my field of vision. Separate scales for sight and sound, smell and taste, touch and temperature. On the left side are the simulated responses of my virtual body. On the right, the direct sensory inputs from Tad's own nervous system. At the moment, vision is all the way on the left, scent and hearing all the way to the right. The others sit at various points in between. For three years I have fine-tuned these settings, giving myself the illusion of being in Tad's world while remaining a separate entity. Now, with a sweep of my hand, I push all the controls to the extreme right. There is a lurch of perspective, and suddenly I am outside my own body. 
and inside Tad's. I can still see my naked form in our peripheral vision, but now her position and movements exactly mimic our own. I see Sarah looming over us, her lovely naked body breaking out in a light sheen of sweat. I feel her weight atop us, feel the exquisite pleasure as her body rises and falls on our stiff, hard cock. Our hips buck against her with every thrust, making her little breasts bounce with the impact. We're breathing hard, and so is she, as we edge closer and closer to our climax. I can feel it building, in our cock and in our balls, and the anticipation of it is agony and ecstasy in one. Sarah rides us through her climax, throwing her head back and squealing louder than I ever did. The sound makes us almost mad with desire, and we thrust even harder against her. As her orgasm subsides, she lowers herself down for another kiss, her hair falling in curtains around our face. We run a hand through her hair, cradle the back of her head, hold her close to make the kiss last longer. She bites our bottom lip, sending a sudden stab of pain through the pleasure. We cry out with Tad's voice but it is a cry of arousal, not of outrage. Sarah laughs wickedly and leans back again, her eyes sparkling. You like that, sweetie? She places her hands flat against our chest, fingers splayed. How about this? She digs in her fingernails and pulls them toward her, tracing eight white lines down our flesh. We groan, and the world collapses around us as our cock spends itself inside her. I cry out in ecstasy, and though I am not in my body at the moment, I can still hear my own voice, as if it were coming from a spot just beside me. Oh, fuck yes, I hear myself panting. Oh, God, Dad. Our arm reaches out, as if to touch me. I see my own body mimicking the movement to her right. But, of course, it passes through me with no effect. I feel a sudden twinge of physical pain run through us at the realization, and tears well up in our eyes. Oh, chill, Tad whispers with our shared lips. Sarah cocks her head, puzzled. What? An icy chill runs down our spine, and our eyes widen in horrified realization. Quickly, I slide my inputs back to the left, shoving my awareness back into my virtual body. Tad's lips are moving, but nothing comes out but an incoherent, Ugh. Sarah freezes in place, her confusion turning to shock. She stares at Tad in disbelief. You... you're running an instance, she whispers, her skin flushing bright red with humiliation. You're letting someone watch us? Tad winces and looks away from her. He hesitates, licks his lips before answering. A fatal error. Sarah, it's not what you think. You son of a bitch. Sarah's voice is the growl of a wounded animal, anger and pain in equal measure. How dare you? She climbs off of him, grabs her clothes off the floor, and storms for the bathroom, shouting... How dare you! Tad scrambles off the bed, trying to follow her. The bathroom door slams shut before he gets there, and the privacy lock slides into place. 
He presses his hands against the door, rests his forehead against it. Sarah, please, he begs, his voice twisted with pain. If you'll just let me explain. Get out! Sarah shouts, slamming her fist against the door. She is clearly crying now, the grief and humiliation painting her words in bright red agony. Get out of my fucking house! I swear to God, I'll call the cops! At this, she breaks down into incoherent sobs, her fist continuing to pound weakly against the door. Tad bows his head, his whole body looking as if it might fold into itself. Wordlessly, he shuffles back to the bedroom and starts to gather up his things. He does not look at me as he climbs into the car and starts the motor. He stabs the button for home, then puts back his chair and closes his eyes. I sit quietly in the back seat, my heart aching. I can think of nothing to say that will not make things worse. Back at the house, he goes straight to the bedroom, not even bothering to brush his teeth. He climbs into our cold bed, curls himself around a pillow, and cries himself to sleep. And that's the end of part three. It doesn't look good for our heroes, does it? How's Jill going to get Tad out of this mess? And what is it going to cost them? Find out next week. V.S. Pritchett said, Writing enlarges the landscape of the mind. So let's see what's new in my mental topography. Here's your weekly writing report. I wrote 3,580 words this week, over the course of 4.5 hours, for an average writing speed of 796 words per hour. As of Friday night, I've gone 58 days without breaking my chain. I made some more progress this week on None Shall Dwell Within. The story now shifts to Callie Linder, who is dealing with the consequences of taking over Kenning's security at the end of The Lost and the Least. Callie is now firmly installed in a position of leadership on the street, and unfortunately for her, that means she has to make decisions that affect the lives of other people. As the conflict between Malcolm and the White Widow reaches a boiling point, Callie has to decide which contracts she's going to let the Runner's Guild accept, and which ones they have to turn down in order to abide by the Runner's Code. Remember, Runners aren't supposed to kill except in self-defense. So what happens when a Runner breaks the rules? Callie's the one who has to decide when someone has broken the Code, and that decision has real consequences especially when the person you're judging is someone you know and care about. Callie's going to have to make some tough choices in this book, and I look forward to putting her through the ringer. I'm nearing the end of Chapter 7, and the manuscript stands at a little over 22,000 words. Over on the Patreon feed, we have a new patron this week. Please welcome Rebecca. By now, patrons in the United States should be receiving their Metamore City holiday cards. Abby Hilton got hers, and she says the artwork this year is especially adorable. I hope you think so, too. There are still 13 patrons who haven't responded to my request for a mailing address, so be sure to log into your Patreon account and send me a reply if you want to get a card this year. 
This week, I also learned about a whole new way to promote your favorite podcasts. It's called Podchaser, and you can find it at podchaser.com. You can think of it as being like Goodreads for podcasts. You can choose your favorites, create lists of shows around a particular theme, rate podcasts and even individual episodes, leave reviews, and follow creators so you can stay informed about their work. It's also a little like IMDb, because you can see listings of all of a creator's podcasting credits, including guest appearances and voice acting work. And, most importantly of all, it's also like a wiki, because Podchaser counts on listeners like you to help them fill in any missing information. Why not come join us there? Leave a review for The Raven and the Writing Desk, and help others discover the show. It's all at podchaser.com. And now, the feedback. Jeff, a.k.a. the Mithril Dragon, writes, Chris, first, thanks for writing The Lost in the Least, another great book. I knew Metamore was a special place when I first found it, way back near the beginning. A great mixture of magic and technology and fantasy, mixing together with the mundane world. Each novel and short story fleshes out this world just a little bit more. I really look forward to more adventures in this world. Which brings me to a concern. Things Unseen pointed to future events where Metamore burns. MC is such a wonderful place, and the story possibilities are endless. There seems to be so much to explore, I can't help wonder why you want to burn it down. Hi, Jeff. First, let me say thank you for your kind words, and I'm glad you've been enjoying the story so much. I do understand your concerns. When we find a story world that we love, it's natural to keep wanting new stories in it forever. But here's the reality. Writers don't live forever. I was 20 when I started writing Metamore City. I'm 40 now. And after five books, we've only just gotten to the place where the threat that Sefi foresaw has been revealed. By my rough estimate, there are four more books in the main story arc, and at least four more side stories that are likely to be novel length. And that's not even counting projects like the PsyOps books, which I'm not sure if I'm actually going to write. So that's eight more books I need to finish in order to tell the metamore stories I want to tell. That's enough to keep me going for a long time. Even if I greatly pick up the pace at which I've been writing, and I can finish one book a year, I'll still be close to 50 when it's done. And I do have other stories I want to tell, like my Goetic Age Apocalypse trilogy. The last thing I want to do is pull a Robert Jordan and die before I finish telling my story. My fans deserve better than that. I promised you guys an epic story arc with a beginning, a middle, and an end, and I mean to deliver on that. And that means having a plan and seeing it through. Lastly, I know that Sefi's vision was awful and scary. It was supposed to be. Epic stories have to have big stakes. But just because Metamore is coming to the end of an age, that doesn't necessarily mean the end of existence. It just means a big change in the status quo one where the gods can't foresee the outcome. The world of Metamore will be forever changed when this story arc is over, but that doesn't mean our heroes are all going to die, or that everything they loved will be lost. I can't promise that every reader is going to be satisfied with the ending, but if you look at what I've done in the past, 
you can see that my stories almost always end in a place that reaffirms humanity and a hope for the future. That's who I am as a writer, and I think it's safe to bet that that will be true for the end of Metamor City as well. Thanks for writing in. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorcityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is facebook.com slash author Chris Lester. The fan group is fans of Metamore City on Facebook. And my Mastodon handle is at author Chris Lester at wandering.shop. If you like this show, take a minute and leave me a review in Apple Podcasts. It makes a big difference in helping people find the show. That's all for this week. I'll be back next time with more fiction, fresh off the writing desk. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2018 and 2019 by Chris Lester and the Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives license. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.